This podcast is sponsored by Maddox Lawyers, who are the lawyers to call when you need practical solutions to complex problems. Welcome to the very first PX podcast for 2018. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my astute partner in crime, Peter Jewell. We have big plans for the podcast this year and are very keen to hear any subject or personality suggestions from our listeners. If you do have a suggestion, please don't hesitate to contact us via Facebook by searching Planning Exchange or by emailing us at planningexchange at gmail.com. We wanted to start off the new year with a bang, so let me give you some clues on our interview topic today. He founded an architecture company in 1953. Through a partnership with others, he designed the Melbourne Olympic swimming pool. He wrote the 1973 strategy plan for Melbourne, and he created the Dinner Plain Alpine Village. It is, of course, Peter McIntyre. Welcome to the show. We're very honoured to have the opportunity to interview you, Peter, and thank you for taking the time. Peter, can you uh, let us know how you first got into architecture? Well, I grew up into it. Uh, uh, my father was an architect, uh, and when, when the... Uh, when we were coming out of the Depression, about 1933, 34, 34, I was seven years of age, and uh, I started working in my father's office uh, as the office boy. So that's where I started. And Peter, what, what, what did you learn from your father in terms of architecture and other things? Well, my father was uh, a dour Scotchman, and uh, <laughs> he taught me quite a number of things. Uh, told me to always pay my debts, <laughs> for example, I remember that very strongly. Um, I didn't learn a great deal from him about architecture. I learned more from him about life. He'd had a very tough life. He was in the Somme, gassed. While he was there, his wife and child died oh. at childbirth. And um, when he came back and finished his course, started the, started the office in 1920. Uh, and and he, he was going very well up till then, 1929. I was born 27. And the depression hit him, and uh, then he had three or four years out of work. So when you graduated, Australia was coming out of the post-war austerity. Can you briefly describe the mood amongst other young architects at that time? Uh, how young architects were... Um, I didn't quite get your question. So the mood of young architects after the post-war austerity... Peter, in the early 50s? Oh, the mood in, of architects. Yeah, the mood. Well, it was like being let out of jail. It was, uh, I've spoken about this many times. I mean, during the, the war, there was rationing on food, uh, rationing on, you couldn't travel anywhere, there was no petrol. Uh, and <laughs> all we did in the, uh, you know, is think about the war. Mm. So uh, everything was grey, there were blackouts at night, uh, and when the war finished in 45, it was just like being let out of jail. Mm. We splashed colour everywhere. Your earlier work uh, involved pushing the boundaries with the new materials and engineering technologies. Can you briefly talk to this? Yes. <clears throat> well, um, there was a tremendous shortage of materials. Uh, people were looking for ways in which they could build in an economic way uh, by saving materials, reducing the number of materials. They were looking for uh, new techniques of construction that uh, could assist in doing this because the demand was so great, the materials so short, and it was very difficult to put the two together. Mm. Robin Boyd once wrote of Melbourne's architectural world in the decade after the war, what enthusiasm abounded when the latest Peter McIntyre or Kevin Borland house was unveiled? It was a European revolution happening all over again, a generation later. 
What sensations, what excitement, what experience? Can you talk to this quote? I think it's what inexperience Oh, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, try the inexperience. (laughs) Yeah, well, the architectural course in those days was a lot of inexperience. Uh, That's how the course was. Um, However, because I'd sort of been grown up in an architect's office, um, I actually felt quite experienced and... um, when I graduated in 1949, I went straight into my own practice. Um, so, um, but uh, I suppose that uh, my early work was more experimental rather than based on any experience. That's a lot of freedom, Peter. Do you think uh, young <clears throat> architects today have that same sort of freedom that you had to experiment? No, no, it's an entirely different world, entirely different world. Mm. Uh, I mean, technology has taken over and... Uh, it, uh, it's, it's just, just a different, different planet. Mm. In, in previous interviews, we talked about the small house service. Um, that, that was a service that ran for designing small houses that ran in the age from 47 to 90, the early 60s with designs available to members of the public to purchase that architects produced. Yes. You worked on that for a while yes. with Robin Boyd. That's right. Mm. It was a great, a great service and Robin ran it very well. <clears throat> and uh, the whole idea was that people were able to get architectural design uh, working drawings uh, for a very small amount of money. Yeah. And that would have been challenging, a good, turning good designs for limited space. Was it a challenge? Was it? Oh, absolutely a challenge, yes. Mm. But it was a way of which uh, Robin managed to get an influenced public. How many architects would have been involved in that program? Oh, anything up to 40, 50. Okay. With the mass production of uh, housing in contemporary times, uh, architects don't seem to be present, Peter, uh, as they were in the 50s with a small house. Do do you bemoan the fact that architects aren't more involved in the sort of mass production or suburban development as they once were? Yes. Well, of course, um, architects... um, I mean, it's a changing world for architects. There, there are a lot more graduates now than there were in the early days. And uh, so architects are working in many different fields. But I do think that the big opportunity for us is to work in the uh, field of mass production and, and um, off-site construction. Mm. Is that, uh, is that um, prefabricated sort of houses being built in factories and dropping them on site? Yes, that's right. Yes, our office is working on exactly those projects now. And back in 1970, you were involved in the production of the Metro Plan for Melbourne. How was that as an experience? I was involved in the what? In the the Metro Plan for Melbourne? Metro Plan for Melbourne, 1970. Oh, that's that's when I introduced uh, strategic planning to Australia. Mm. Uh, A guy called Otto Kernersberger, who was professor of um, planning in University College London, um, evolved uh, the process of uh, strategic planning. Um, <clears throat> Melbourne at the time, the city of Melbourne, had, was just working on an interim development order and it wasn't able to do anything it liked. Mm. Um, and um, we went to Dick Hamer and said to him, look, we should be introducing this type of planning to Australia. And the essential difference between uh, strategic planning and um, what was then land use planning uh, was that we were introducing a process which uh, enabled uh, planners to measure what was actually happening in a city mm. and then respond to that. Mm. Peter, you've been involved in architecture for seven decades. How does one go about regeneration and reinvention? <laughs> well, <clears throat> um, 
I don't think what's required so much is reinvention. What, what, what I personally, my own philosophy about architecture is that the buildings that are being built in, in the world, but certainly in Australia, aren't responding to people's uh, real uh, emotional reactions to buildings. Uh, and um, <clears throat> I've tried very much in teaching students to get them to try and observe how people behave, people's patterns of behaviour, and to try to make their buildings respond to that. And that my whole practice is based on that philosophy. And is that, can you put a term to that? Is that the architectural humanism that you've... Well, I've called it emotional functionalism. In other words, it's studying how people react to spaces and situations and then uh, making designs respond to that reaction. You mentioned teaching. Um, has that been a passion of yours throughout your profession? Yes, yes, I've loved teaching. Yes, I have done quite a bit of teaching. Song Bowden provides town planning services throughout Victoria. They are recognised within the industry for providing planning, advocacy and expert evidence in VCAT hearings. So give Dave Song or Dan Bowden a call to discuss your planning needs. Salt, traffic engineering and Victorian planning reports. Peter, you're involved in some very many innovative projects which bro have broken new ground. Dinner Plain, for example, which is a massive undertaking at something like 5,000 beds. How does one overcome inertia and resistance to change when you're trying to create something completely revolutionary? Well, it's like Churchill said, only blood, sweat and tears. That's all, all that can be offered to it. Hmm. Uh, well, that, that project took 10 years and uh, the... Um, the work we had to do to move authorities to, to get it approved was was absolutely phenomenal. So <clears throat> there's nothing else but hard work and trying and everything else. Yeah. How did um, that initial concept actually happen? I mean, did they approach you about that project? Or Yes, well, what happened is that um, two young real estate agents uh, went skiing <clears throat> at Hotham and um, being real estate agents, they looked around for what development could be. And they discovered that this piece of freehold land, and it was freehold land, uh, was above the snow line. And it was the highest piece of freehold land in Australia. And um, they uh, thought they could develop it. And uh, uh, because <clears throat> we'd been working, doing a lot of work in the Alpine areas, uh, they came to our office and asked us to do something. And that's how it started. Uh, after about um, 18 months, they uh, had a setback with a development they had out of the Croydon market. And um, I, by that stage, <clears throat> I was so enthusiastic about the project, uh, we purchased it from them. And uh, I put together a team of people, uh, Jeff Henke, who was a client and who developed Falls Creek, and um, a couple of builders who, uh, who worked in Alpine areas, uh, lawyers, and we formed a company and we, we took over the whole project. Mm. Um, but you've, you've witnessed the growth of planning regulations and the emergence of the urban design profession. How did, what, what's your thoughts on that, in, in, particularly the sort of the urban designers coming between planners? Well, it's, it's, they're fulfilling a need that should have been there a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, there hadn't been the thought about the importance of the spaces between buildings, just the buildings themselves. Yeah. So urban design, yes, is a very, very important field that has been developed in the last uh, 30, 30 years. 
and uh, it's doing people that are practicing that are doing very fine work. Just quickly back to architecture, you were an early practitioner of the modernism. Did you encounter much resistance at the council or authority level from those early designs? <laughs> yes, yes, we, we did. Uh, the very first building I ever built is called the uh, Stargazer House. And um, <clears throat> it was a house, uh, the client had inherited a block of land in Baldwin and uh, he didn't like suburbia but uh, he was going to build a house on this land because it was given to him. So he asked me to design a house that he couldn't see all the other houses around him. And uh, I came up with this idea of having a, a house that looked up towards the sky. That's why it was called the Stargazer <laughs> House. And uh, it wasn't approved by the authorities. So I had to um, give a lecture to the whole council with, uh, about modern architecture and Boyd wrote up this uh, lecture in the age, and uh, eventually I got a permit for it, and oh, it was built. It's uh, persistence. <laughs> when, when you encounter resistance to your plans, what tact do you normally take? When people are resisting, well, just persuasion. I mean, architects spend their life persuading. Mm. Uh, they they have uh, uh, clients that uh, aren't used to working with architects, and you've got to try to give them images of, of what they're they are hoping what, what what might happen. So you're always in a continuous continuous business of persuading people, but also persuading authorities. Yeah. Do you think that's in part um, people not understanding plans and how to read plans and needing to have the design communicated to them? Yes, that's true. Mm. <coughs> we particularly found that in the case of developing Dinner Plane because um, we were dealing with people that <coughs> would uh, never normally employ architects. Uh, and suddenly they, they were confronted with the fact that uh, we'd invented this process where we, when they came along to purchase, we said to them they had to, um, uh, we'd, we'd design a house for them or a ski lodge for them uh, without them being employ employing us. Uh, and if they liked it, we'd then sell the land to them and attach the design. So we had to develop a method of whereby we could design the, the building very quickly within a few days. And we set up a, a, a modelling place uh, where we'd model the actual building, not, not modelling in computer sense, mm. physical models. Mm. And uh, we'd present a physical model to them. And that's how we overcame that, that problem of showing them what the building looks like. Yeah. Peter, you've worked on many projects. It's a bit unfair, but can you describe two that you particularly enjoy? Uh, yes, um, I, I can describe lots of projects really that I've enjoyed. Um, it's a bit unfair, the question. Lots of buildings that uh, I've... Um, uh, <clears throat> I was talking to you earlier about my philosophy. Um, I've tried to introduce that into many, many buildings and, and I've failed miserably in lots of cases, in my own opinion. I haven't achieved what I set out to do. But one building that I, that I built for myself where I applied that sort of philosophical approach uh, and it, it came, in my opinion, it turned out being the most successful building I've ever designed. And uh, it, it was um, a house I built for myself at Mornington on the coast. It was a very beautiful site, almost had its feet in the water, and um, it had its own little beach. And it was a very little house. Uh, but I'd been inspired a lot by Roy Ground's uh, beach house at um, Ranmar. And uh, as students, we used to go down there in the SWAT vac and stay in it. And um, I uh, designed this little house, and uh, it won the uh, Robin Boyd Medal. That's the best the, house in Australia the at the time. Medal, 
Uh, and uh, uh, it's, it, I think, has been the most successful building I've ever designed. That's the Sea House, is it? Yes, the Sea House, yeah. And on the flip side, you've worked on, have you worked on a project that you've later regretted it without naming it, of course? And what did you learn from that process? Well, you learn all the time. Every, every, I've been, I've been on a job this morning and uh, you, you strike situations that you've never struck before, even if you keep practicing as long as I have. Uh, and you never stop learning. You absolutely never stop learning because the circumstances change all the time. The people change, sites change, the circumstances around the particular project change. It's a continual process of learning. And I'm certainly learning now. And um, I've written uh, a book, which is to be published after I die, uh, for students. Most architects write books about themselves and their buildings, but I've written about the, the changing sort of circumstances that architects encounter in an attempt to let uh, young students understand what it's like practising architecture. How do you actually educate clients who might come in with really strong opinions of what they want, but which you might think are actually misconceived? What, you mean people coming in saying they want something and mm. you think it's wrong? Yeah. Well, that goes back to persuasion. <clears throat> I, I learned about, a lot about persuasion when I was working with Robin Boyd and uh, some people came in and demanded a, um, uh, a Georgian house uh, over in Turak. <laughs> and um, he went ahead and uh, took the project and did the design and process. And those people really believed they had got a Georgian house in the end. And, of course, <laughs> it wasn't Georgian house at all, but <laughs> it had uh, derivatives of Georgian house. About. So, yes, it's persuasion and it's a matter of, of uh, trying very hard to get your point across. Peter, each professional generation, whether it be architects or planners, seems to criticise the previous generation of yes. professionals, which is part of that evolving process. Sure. What do you th what do you suspect that future planners and architects will criticise us for? Well, um, <clears throat> uh, you're talking over a period of, in my case, of 70 <laughs> years of practice. So I, uh, I've been through so many eras. Mm. Uh, and I suppose every, every 10, 15, 20 years, uh, <clears throat> a group of architects will criticise the, the previous 20 years. Well, that's just a continual process of refinement, I think. Uh, always trying more and more to respond to people's needs, uh, to new construction techniques that we can develop, uh, to new demands. Uh, so one looks back at what one did in the past and you think, well, you know, that's, that's pretty, pretty hopeless what I've done back then. But uh, it was obviously the best you could do at the time. Mm. So, yes, it is natural for people to look back on other eras and be critical of it. Mm. And to each age, it's art. Yes. Mm. And in your, in your later uni days, when you were still a student, you were involved in the Archie Review, which is like a folly show. Yeah. And also you made uh, satirical films about the development industry. Yes. And can you just describe the importance of not taking things too seriously when you're young? <laughs> oh, well, I fulfilled that very much because I didn't take anything very much seriously. <laughs> because I was so sort of, um, had, you know, had so much experience of architecture before I ever went into the course, uh, it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me going into the course because I, I, I could get a girlfriend. I'd never, I'd never actually had a girlfriend until I started. I started the course when I was 16 when the, when the war was still on. Mm. And uh, the first thing I did it was to get a girlfriend. I, but the course was just something that uh, I was you know, very simple to, to cope with. But the, um, uh, 
fun. Well, you ask about fun. Well, I, I had more fun than I think I've ever had in my life in those years when I was a student. And reviews just came out of all that fun. And uh, because uh, we were so keen on spreading the word about modern architecture, they, they weren't just reviews about, uh, about general humour and so forth. No, they were related very much to the message we were trying to spread, and that was uh, the importance of buildings uh, and the importance of getting the buildings right. Mm. Mm. A disclaimer, listeners, um, Peter, Peter actually shared digs with my father back in 1949 in Fitzroy when my father was an architect, so um, hopefully my father behaved himself in those days. He wasn't an architect. He was an architectural student like I was. <laughs> We're in the same year. So uh, hopefully they, he behaved himself. Anyway, yeah, moving on, Jess. Um, Peter, can you tell us about your wonderful home here in Kew? Yes, well, that, that I'm very pleased to tell you about that. Um, <clears throat> I bought this land here when I was a student, which is a story in itself. There's six acres here on the river. Uh, and uh, I designed a building. I had been influenced by, uh, in my final year of, of structures, at, at uh, studying structures at Melbourne University, uh, by uh, the structural engineer who was teaching us. And he introduced us to precast concrete and... Uh, and pre-stressed concrete and post-tension concrete. And it was, um, uh, he had introduced us to, us to analysing structures and where stresses and strains are. And uh, it was about um, counterbalancing forces so that you could reduce the total size of beams and things like that. And uh, this little design I had done in, I, bu I bought this land in 1947 and I immediately started designing a house to go on there. I didn't have any money to... I was spending my life paying for the land, but uh, it's another story. And um, But I went ahead and designed the house. So I had this house counterbalancing forces, uh, and but never building it. I, I couldn't build it until we used the same principle about counterbalancing forces in uh, the Olympic swimming pool competition, uh, which we won. Uh, and um, after I'd won that and, and paid some fees, I then built this house. It had to be built um, 40 feet above the water because that was the rise of, in flood level, and it was on a very steep embankment, and I knew that it would be um, cantilevered out into space somewhere, so I just made two cantilevers, one balancing the other, two 40-foot cantilevers, one balancing each other. And uh, that's so the form of the house wasn't selected just as selecting arbitrary a shape. The form of the house came from the structural solution of how to build a house on a very steep slope, which um, uh, had to be cantilevered out above the river. Listeners, we'll put a, we'll put a link on our website to the uh, to the house, the, the tree house. Yeah, it's called the, the river house. The river house, sorry. Uh, in, in terms of insp inspirational material, Peter, can you recommend a book, a building and a place to our listeners? Well, a book that we used to recommend young students aspiring towards architecture was to read uh, the, uh, the Fountainhead, Ayn oh, Rand's Fountainhead. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this was the book where uh, it's based on Frank Lloyd Wright's life uh, about how idealistic an architect can be and what lengths he'd go to to try and get the message across. A building? What, my most inspirational building? Well, what, what building would you send, direct our listeners to, to, to gain some inspiration? Well, my favourite building in Melbourne is uh, Burley Griffin's uh, Newman College. I think uh, 
if you look at the it's two wings of mm. of, uh, of dormitories, uh, and uh, they they come together at a, fu- a fulcrum in a centre, and uh, the the composition of that fulcrum and it's constructed in stone, and and the detailing of it is really something to me absolutely special. I just love the work of uh, Bertie Griffin, mm. and I just love Newman College. It's my favourite building. Mm. I used to sit in the University, uh, eat sandwiches, looking at it. Mm. And, and in terms of a place, place, mm, a place. My favourite place in Australia is Sydney Harbour. Mm. Uh, I've just been drawing drawings of Sydney Harbour. I've been, uh, uh, I've, I've done quite a bit of sailing in my time, and uh, I used to sail around Sydney Harbour. But uh, it's it's a place that you can never stop learning about, mm. and I just love it. And Peter, how do you refresh and relax? A big one. How do you refresh and relax? Well, all my life I've um, I've always taught young architects too that they really have to take their they don't get really many holidays. They have to take their recreation uh, uh, and then try to evolve the work around the recreation. Now, I started skiing when I was about uh, seventeen. And I fell in love with it, uh, so I developed a skiing practice. So my recreation has been about uh, having uh, skiing and sailing and um, trying to get work around those two particular things. And Peter, I've got one final question. Is, is impatience a virtue? Impatience a virtue. Or is patience a virtue? <laughs> uh, I'd have to think about the answer oh, to this. We'll come back to that. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Peter. Uh, this is, uh, this is, as Jess said, this is our first interview for the year. We'll uh, post the details on our website of uh, upcoming uh, episodes. And uh, thank you very much, Peter. Well, and I thank you very much. They were very interesting questions. Uh, <laughs> very <laughs> testing questions. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, Jess. Thank you. You've got the faith that I could bring paradise. Closest, hi, hi, hi.